I know a lot of you, but I expect that a lot of you don't know me. <laughs> um, my name is Ron Stolle, and I've been teaching Bible studies here at Faith Bible Church from the very early days. Um, So our text for this morning is Acts chapter 2. We're going to focus on the idea that the early church was devoted to God's Word, just as we should be devoted to God's Word today. There's a story about a young boy who was committed to God. His father, the king, was assassinated when he was only eight years old. This young boy was next in line of succession so he became king at a very young age. At age 18, this king was concerned that the temple needed to be repaired. The people had made contributions to the temple repair, but so far nothing was happening. So the still rather young king sent a scribe to the house of the Lord, the temple, to account for the contributions so that he could order the needed temple repairs. The young king's name was Josiah, and he's typically described as a great king. Josiah was the king of Judah for 31 years, from about 640 B.C. to 609 B.C. So Josiah sent the scribe to the high priest. When the scribe arrived, the high priest told the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. How could they lose the book of the law in the house of the Lord. The word of God was lost within just a couple of generations. Josiah's great-grandfather was King Hezekiah, who was described as the best king. Josiah's grandfather was Manasseh, Hezekiah's son, was a depraved murderer when he reigned. He built the high places of pagan worship his father Hezekiah had torn down, and he built idolatrous altars in the house of the Lord. Manasseh even sacrificed his own son in pagan worship. Even though Manasseh had made a personal conversion and returned to God at the end, he was never able to lead Judah out of idol worship. When Manasseh died, his son Ammon, Josiah's father, succeeded him as king. Ammon reigned only two years, and yet he earned the description of being the evil king. Ammon worshipped and offered sacrifices to the idols his father had made. However, unlike Manasseh, Ammon did not humble himself before the Lord. Thus, God's word was lost in the house of the Lord. The temple that Manasseh had desecrated with idol worship, the very place where it was to be treasured. It's ironic that Israel actually misplaced the word of God. Moreover, that they lost it in the house of the Lord. The people of God lost his word, which was at the very center of their identity, and the thing that made them distinctive amongst the pagan nations. And this story can be found in 2 Kings chapters 21 and 22. Josiah is introduced in 2 Kings 22 this way. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the way of David his father, and he did not turn from the right to the left. That kind of walk comes from being devoted to God's Word. 
The scribe who was sent to the high priest by Josiah took the book of the law to the king and read it to him. This young king was committed to God and Judah's worship of God, just as God had prescribed in the Levitical system. Josiah properly responded to God's word. He was therefore blessed. When Josiah listened to God's word, it did a spiritual work in him. It was just not a matter of Josiah reading information from the scripture. Rather, God's word had a powerful spiritual impact on Josiah. And the impact didn't stop with Josiah, because Josiah also had the scriptures read to the people. Josiah's heart was deeply affected by the people's failure to honor God's word. Josiah made a commitment to live by the word of God, and he led Judah accordingly. We learn from Deuteronomy 17, 18 through 20, that each king was to have his own personal copy of the law. The king was instructed to make a copy by himself, for himself, from the one the Levitical priest held. And he was to read it all the days of his life. The whole nation of Israel was expected to know the law. Deuteronomy 31 tells us about Moses' last words to the children of Israel just before he went to Mount Nebo to view the promised land that he'd not enter into himself. Mount Nebo was the very place where God had appointed him to die. That was just before Joshua led the Israelites into the promised land. Moses commanded that the entire law was to be read to the whole nation once every seven years at the Feast of Tabernacles. The purpose of the, reading of, the, of the reading of the law was to keep the law before the people so they and their children would learn from the scriptures that they would fear the Lord and they would obey the law. What's the danger? Prior to Josiah's leadership, there was obviously a time in Judah's history where there was no devotion to God's word. They failed. The word of God was lost. Could this happen to the church today? Has it already happened to some churches? We learn in our Hebrews series that there is no standing still. Hebrews 2.1 says, For this reason we must pay closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. What must we do? As this verse says, we must pay closer attention so that we do not drift away from it. The idea is that we are to earnestly obey the Word of God, highly prize the Word of God as something that's exceedingly important, doing that with diligence, embracing the Word of God in faith. So what's the solution? Hide it or lose it. Where do we hide the Scriptures so we don't lose it? Psalm 119.11 says, Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. For about the first two millennia of Christianity, the Bible was generally viewed as the authoritative word of God. The Bible has historically been seen as truth. Only in more recent years has that been questioned. The Bible is lost when it's no longer viewed as authoritative. And that's what happened to some churches. It's also happened to our society. The founding fathers of our nation were likely not all professing Christians, but they knew Scripture and they viewed the Bible as authoritative Word of God. Thus, our country has enjoyed a Christian culture and a Christian character. Unfortunately, that view of the Bible has been lost in more recent years. By and large, our nation has become secular. 
Why? Because the word of God has been neglected. Chuck Swindoll wrote a short article on this problem of neglecting God's word. You can find it on insight.org. Swindoll began his article, Few things are more obvious and alarming in our times than biblical illiteracy. Even though the human mind can absorb an enormous amount of information, mental laziness remains a scandalous and undeniable trend in popular culture and even within the church. Fewer people than ever know the most basic content of the Bible, and that was not the case until roughly 50 years ago. The Word of God was lost to me. By faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross to pay the penalty for my sin, I became a child of God, just as the Bible promised. Romans 10.17 says, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing comes from the Word of Christ. God enlightened me from His Word. Colossians 1.13-14 is a summary of the Gospel, and it tells us how the Holy Spirit works. It says, For He rescued us, me, from the domain of darkness and transferred us, changed my situation, to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we, I, have redemption for the forgiveness of sins. I was a church-going guy, but God's word was as good as lost to me. I was lost in sin and under the authority of Satan and the power of darkness. Praise God that I was transferred into the kingdom of light, no longer a prisoner because my debt was canceled. Five decades ago, God placed me in a Bible teaching church where the pastor graciously took the time to meet me in the park before work. He taught me how to simply open the Bible that I had never read. It had been lost to me. This pastor met with me so that I might see for myself what the Bible says, so that I might treasure it in my heart. He pastored me to be devoted to the Word of God. What can we do here at Faith Bible Church to keep the Word of God before us? As previously announced, we're doing a five-part series for the five Sundays of May based on Acts 2.42-47. These are the five basic focuses of church discipleship. Acts 2.42-47, we have the truths that established the early church. Not comprehensive, but some essential points for us to consider. The truths that established the early church, devoted to the word, devoted to fellowship, devoted to worship, devoted to prayer, devoted to mission. Appropriately so, these truths are also the five measures of ministry for Faith Bible Church. Today we'll focus on devoted to the word, from our text in Acts 2 and a few other places in the Bible. So turn with me to Acts 2. I'm using the New American Standard Bible. Context is fundamental for understanding what a passage says. So let's walk through the context of Acts 2 leading up to our text. We're going to skip over a lot of power-packed details so we can focus on Acts 2, 42 through 47. But it's important to note from this context that the Holy Spirit empowers us, enables us. So Acts 2, 1 through 13 deals with Pentecost, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit to indwell Christians, ushering in a new era, the church age. 
The new covenant was replacing the old covenant as we've seen in our Hebrew series. Look at Acts 2.12. And they all continued in amazement. In other words, they were puzzled. In great perplexity or wholly at a loss. Saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, they're full of sweet wine. Indication here is that this supernatural event caused quite a stir. In Acts 2.14 through 36, we have the first sermon of the Christian era. A model sermon centered on scripture and centered on Christ. Peter addressed the crowd's puzzlement, quoting passages of the Old Testament to say that Jesus, who they crucified and who rose again, was in fact the Messiah. Now look at Acts 2.36. Peter sums it up. Therefore, or assuredly, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The word this is emphatic. This Jesus, pointing out that Jesus was indeed the Christ. The word Christ is a title equivalent to the title Messiah. In Acts 2, 37-41, we have the crowd's reaction. The effect of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the church. Look at Acts 2, 37. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Pierced to the heart was a work of the Holy Spirit whereby they were deeply affected with or struck with very strong feelings. They were convicted and they felt the pain of guilt as the word of God worked in their hearts. That raised their question, Brethren, what shall we do? Look at Acts 2.38. Peter answered them, Repent. That's the answer. Repent. And each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The idea of repent is to turn around or to change your mind. Look at Acts 2.41. Here's the crowd's response. So then, those who had received the word were baptized. That day they were added about 3,000 souls. Received the word, added 3,000 souls. Meaning, they welcomed Peter's word, they accepted it, they acknowledged it without qualification, they agreed and approved of what Peter said about the revelation of Joel 2, Psalm 16, and Psalm 110. Literally, the original language in this verse includes the idea that they received the word after they had given it thoughtful consideration. Now, with the context of Acts 2.1 through 2.41 in mind, we come to the text for this series of Sunday morning messages. Look at Acts 2.42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayer. They, the new converts, 3,000 plus earlier converts, the new church doing what? Continually devoting to what? Teaching. That's our topic this Sunday, continually devoting to teaching. What were the apostles teaching? What did the apostles have to teach at that time? They had the Old Testament scriptures. Before most of the New Testament was written, they did have their own experiences with Jesus Christ that ended up being New Testament content. We just finished an eight-month series in Hebrews where we saw how Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah prophesied in the Old Testament. He's the better high priest, that is, he is the true Messiah, just that the Hebrews writer argued from the Old Testament scriptures. 
The apostles' teaching was, in fact, the Word of God, as explained by Peter in Acts. But what is the Word of God? That question needs to be answered correctly before we talk about devotion to it. We need to understand what it is that we need to be devoted to. So let's look at three key points, a non-exhaustive look at the subject of my devotion. Key point number one, the Word of God is inspired. In 2 Peter 1, 20 through 21, Peter tells us how God used human writers, Old Testament writers that Peter quoted, and New Testament writers like Peter himself, were given words by God to give us the Bible. The Bible was not written by men who used their own ideas. 1 Peter 1, 20 through 21 says, But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Men moved by the Holy Spirit. Thus, in Acts 2.42, the apostles' teaching is the word of God. So the Holy Spirit moved the writers, moved them along. What does that mean? Here's an analogy of what the word moved means. Pat and I grew up in a town on the eastern tip of Iowa on the banks of the Mississippi River. In high school, I joined the Muddy Mississippi Ski Daddlers. That's quite a name for a ski club, isn't it? Of course, we had to impress the girls by teaching them how to ski. At some point, a person typically wants to slalom, that is, ski on one ski. Um, most people struggle getting up on just one ski, so we used a freeboard. And they could get up on two skis, and then once they stabilized, they could drop the freeboard. That meant we not only needed a boat to pull the skier, we needed a second boat to chase the freeboard downriver because the Mississippi has a very strong current and just moves things downstream. Just as the writers of the Word of God were moved along by the Holy Spirit to record God's Word. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us that the Bible is inspired. Literally, God breathed. Therefore, God's Word is divine revelation. This is the only use in the Bible of the Greek word which is translated God breathed, which means the Bible is inspired by God, but other scriptural passages support the premise that Scripture is indeed inspired by God, and the expression, God breathed, is a great word picture. 2 Timothy 3.16 also tells us that all Scripture is profitable for us. The entire Bible is profitable for us. By the way, the word Scripture is used 51 times in the New Testament and refers to both New Testament and Old Testament. Key point number two, the Word of God is spiritual. Since the Holy Spirit gave us the Word, only the Holy Spirit can teach and interpret it accurately. Thus, we pray and we rely on the Holy Spirit. We would expect that a Bible-studying church would be a Spirit-filled church. 1 Corinthians 2, 12-14 says, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. 
But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. 1 Corinthians 2, 12-14 tells us that we have received not the Spirit of the world, but we have received the Spirit of God. Why? So that we may know the things freely given to us by God. Spiritual thoughts for spiritual people. Therefore, prayer for guidance as I study the Bible is an imperative. Conversely, words taught by human wisdom means that principles derived by men in their own wisdom are the wrong way to measure God's word. Further, this passage indicates that faith is central to how we as Christians are able to receive God's word. It's telling us this by drawing a distinction between the natural man or the unspiritual person versus the one who has received the spirit or the spiritual person. And what's true of individuals collectively becomes true of a church. Key point number three, the Word of God is alive and active. It lives and it works. In our Hebrews series, we saw Hebrews 4.12. For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The Word of God is alive because God is a living God. The Word of God is a living organism that when planted in the heart, bears fruit. The Word of God is effective, powerful, and life-changing. The Word of God will not come back void. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 50, verses 10 and 11. Isaiah 50, 10 and 11. Isaiah said, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there without watering the earth, and making it bare and sprout, and furnishing seed to the sower, and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. I will not return to me empty, without accomplishing what I desire, and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. The point here is that spending time in God's Word will bring results accomplishing His purposes in me. So what does it mean to be devoted? Look again, go, turn back again to Acts chapter 2 and verse 42. They were continually devoting. While the New American Standard translates the Greek word or the original language to continually devoting, evidently various Bible translators have struggled with using English for a full meaning of the original word used here. The King James Version and the New King James Version translate the original word to continued steadfastly, while the NIV and the ESV uh, translates it to devoted, leaving out the idea of continually. Variations in translation seems a bit confusing. So what does the original word actually mean in this context? What does it mean to be devoted? The marriage relationship is a common illustration used by commentators to help us understand what the original word devoted means. For example, I love my wife. She loves me. I know she does because she's put up with me for over five decades. It's a very long time. That's loyalty. She's loyal to me, I'm loyal to her. 
That's what devoted means in this passage. What does it mean devoted to God's word? It means enduring, persistent love and loyalty to the teaching of God's word. Just like the marriage relationship thrives on enduring, persistent love and loyalty. Now, what was the reaction to the apostles' teaching? The reaction came after having repented. It tells us that in Acts 2.38. Now we're seeing the activity, the development of the new church. Look at Acts 2.43. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. Awe, meaning fear, deep down in the center of their very being. Not terror, but astonishment, amazement reverential respect. The text says they felt a sense of awe due to the apostles' teaching. The next four topics coming up in our Sunday series in the following weeks flow out of devotion to the Word. Fellowship, worship, prayer, and mission. When I think of awe, I picture Moses at the burning bush shaking in his sandals. Moses definitely would have been in awe. You can see the whole account in Exodus 3.1 through 4.23. Let's look at, let's just looking at Exodus 3.5, it says, Then he, God, said, Do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Can you imagine Moses' awe? I don't have the fiery manifestations of God to put me in awe, but I have his book. Same for Joshua. He miraculously crossed the Jordan River on dry ground. Before Joshua conquered Jericho, the commander of the army of God met Joshua. You can see that in Joshua 15, 13 through 15. Joshua fell on his face and worshipped the pre-incarnate Christ. Joshua was told, just like Moses was told, remove your sandals from your feet. For the place we are standing is holy ground. Now that's awe. Again the question, what does it mean to be devoted to God's word? I'm going to boil it down to four points. Four simple points. Point number one, regarding what does it mean to be devoted to God's word. As we've already seen, it means enduring persistent love and loyalty to the teaching of God's word. Point number two, regarding what does it mean to be devoted to God's Word. We see the meaning in the fact that God gave me two things in particular. He gave me a big fat book and a lifetime to learn it. No easy steps or quick fixes. No magic verse remedies that I can take like a pill. He gave me 66 books within his Bible, within his Word. How can I take advantage of God's Bible that contains over 31,000 verses and over 807,000 words? Being devoted is the key. Being devoted, I will glorify God. After all, glorifying God is God's purpose for me. Point number three regarding what does it mean to be devoted to God. That entails the fact that I need a plan and I need to stick to it. As we noted earlier, God gave the kings a plan in Deuteronomy 17, 18 to 20. Each king was to have his own personal copy of the law. The king was instructed to make a copy himself from the one the Levitical priest held, and he was to read it all the days of his life. I came up with a plan. 
quite a few years ago, and it's really worked well for me. I purchased a daily Bible that provides daily readings and some commentary. Paperback. Cost me $11. Best purchase I've ever made. Annual reading takes discipline and commitment. I found it easy to read it while eating breakfast. Quick and efficient. Bookmark, pick it up again the next day. I never forget because I never forget to have breakfast. Point number four regarding what does it mean to be devoted to God's Word. I need to read the Bible and not just read about the Bible. There are a lot of great Bible scholars, people a lot smarter than me, and there's a lot of very useful Christian literature. Yet, if I think of the Bible as a love letter from God to me personally, I want to be able to read and interpret what God says to me to the best of my ability personally. I would rather study the Bible than study a contemporary book about the Bible. That said, we've accumulated a lot of books. I do need help, but truth be told, the Bible is readable and understandable. Like anything else, there's a science to be applied for understanding. How do I do that? I've appreciated a couple of books that have been very helpful in terms of my developing techniques for understanding the Bible providing tools and principles for getting the most out of my Bible. They are first, Howard Hendricks and his son William wrote Living by the Book. Dr. Hendricks taught the um, Bible study methods course at Dallas Theological Seminary when Chuck Swindoll showed up in 1959. Swindoll was greatly impacted by Hendricks, me too. This book is a great practical guide for effective Bible study practices. Second, Chuck Swindoll, a very readable author and one of my favorites, wrote Searching the Scriptures. Swindoll passed along the principles he learned from Dr. Hendricks and practices he used in over 50 years of ministry. This book is also a good practical guide for effective Bible study practices, written in Swindoll's entertaining style. The implication of the fact that God used men to record his revelation is that I need what he inspired them to write. I need the Bible. If I need it, I should be devoted to it because the Bible is the only reliable source of knowledge about God. We will gain a greater sense of God's majesty and experience greater joy as we better understand his word. Let's go to Nehemiah 8. Nehemiah 8. So you got the accounts of the kings, first and second kings, first and second chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah. And we're going to take a look at some steps in Nehemiah 8. First, some background. The Babylonian captivity or exile occurred in 586 BC, just three decades after Josiah put the Jews back on track. How quickly God's people had gone off the rails to the point of God disciplining them by allowing Nebuchadnezzar to take them captive to Babylon. Yet the problem in Israel was not entirely a matter of good kings versus bad kings, even though four bad kings followed Josiah. And you can read about this in 2 Kings chapter 23 and 24. First after Josiah was Jehoiahaz, 609 B.C. He's been called dreadful. Second, Jehoiakim, 609 to 597 B.C., he's been called degenerate. Third, 
after Josiah was Jehoiachin, 597 B.C. He's been called frightful. And finally, Zedekiah, 597 to 586 B.C. He's been called foolish. And his reign ended in the captivity. The problem with Israel was their adulterous hearts that turned them away from God and they played the harlot with idols. How did they get there? They lacked devotion to God and devotion to God's word. Thus many died and many were carried off to Babylon. You can see about this in Ezekiel 6. So then after 70 years in Babylon, as prophesied in Scripture, King Cyrus of Persia allowed the Jews to return to Jerusalem and they began rebuilding Jerusalem and the temple. The return under the direction of Ezra led to a revival among the Jewish people. Okay, now we go down to Nehemiah 8, 1 through 3. And all the people gathered as one man at the square, which is in front of the water gate. And they asked Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. He read from it before the square, which is in front of the water gate, from early morning until midday. In the presence of men and women, those who could understand. And all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Now drop down to Nehemiah 8.8. They didn't just read. They sought understanding. It says, they read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. Translating or explaining for understanding. Now jump down to verse 12. Where did that leave the people? We might expect from their gaining understanding of God's word. What? All the people went away to eat, to drink, to send portions, and to celebrate a great festival because they understood the words which had been made known to them. The people's great rejoicing is seen in the words, celebrate a great festival. Literally, they made a great rejoicing. Why did they rejoice? It says, because they had understood the words. John Piper wrote, The only joy that reflects the worth of God and overflows in God-glorifying love is rooted in the true knowledge of God. And to that degree that our knowledge is small or flawed, our joy will be a poor echo of God's true excellence. The experience of Israel in Nehemiah 8.12 is a paradigm of how God-glorifying joy happens in the heart. Ezra read the word of God to the people, and the Levites explained the word of God, and then the people went away rejoicing. Go back again to Acts, look at Acts 2.46. Acts 2.46. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. We see joy and rejoicing in the word gladness. This was a vibrant, joyful New Testament church. It's an example for Faith Bible Church to follow. 2 Peter 1.3 says, Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. John Piper commented on this verse saying, All the power available from God to live and be godly comes through knowledge. Amazing. What a premium we should put on doctrine and instruction 
in the scriptures, life and godliness are at stake. Through knowledge, I need doctrine and instruction in the scriptures. Of course, nothing guarantees godliness. However, being devoted to the word of God is key and critical. We learn in our Hebrew series, Hebrews 5.14 says, But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. I certainly need my senses trained to discern good and evil. Discernment comes from the practice of being fed by God's word. What will God's devotion to God's word do for the church? One more point to make in Acts 2, 42 through 47 about devotion to God's word is it results in one mind for the church body. Look at Acts 2, 46. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. Day by day, continuing with one mind. Literally means being united in togetherness as one. This is referring to church unity. So how can we have unity here at Faith Bible Church? The Apostle Paul answered that question in Romans 15:5. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant to you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, so we can have unity according to Christ Jesus. That means from the Word of God, which is the vehicle for God's knowledge. The more each of us is devoted to God's Word, the more we become one mind in His church. When we share collectively the mind of Christ, we will be more unified. My responsibility to the church is to seek the mind of Christ, to become more Christ-like. How do I become more Christ-like? By becoming a more mature Christian. I like to visualize how we grow or mature spiritually by using the simple formula M is equal to the quantity W plus R times T. So M stands for maturity. T stands for time. Spiritual growth takes time. Time in God's Word. M stands for the Word of God. The Word is central in my maturing. R stands for response to the Word, being obedient, reflecting on it, chewing on it. The study of God's Word plus a response to His Word is a quantity or a couplet to be exercised over time. The idea is for my practice to become closer to my position in Christ. My focus should be on the goal of perfect holiness and I ought to be progressing in my maturity. I'm not there, I haven't arrived, and I won't be there until I go to glory. Yet, I ought to demonstrate the characteristics of Christ, reflecting the glory of God here and now. The more I grow, the more I should demonstrate Christ's likeness. The mature Christian should not act childish. <coughs> Being a Christian for some period of time does not guarantee spirituality, but we can still be childish. 1 Corinthians 14.20 begins, Brethren, do not be children in your thinking. And Ephesians 4.14-15 says, We are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him, who is the head, even Christ. We're never done. There's much in the Word of God to guide and direct me. Keep in mind the two things God gave us. He gave us His Word, and He gave us a lifetime to learn from it. 
good project might be to study Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible, 176 verses. Psalm 119 focuses on God's Word. The Word of God is mentioned in almost every verse. Psalm 119 makes reference to the significance and the value of God's Word. Psalm 119 affirms not only the character of God's Word, but affirms God's words tell us of God's character. Truly the Word of God is, as Psalm 119.105 says, a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. So my prayer is, Psalm 119.103, how sweet are your words to my taste. Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. And Psalm 119.18, open my eyes that I may behold the wonderful things from your law. So what? What might I conclude? Is the Bible truly God's Word? If the Bible is God's Word, God has communicated to you and to me what He's like and how we can have a right relationship with Him. If the Bible is the Word of God, it is evidence of His love for you and for me. If the Bible is the Word of God, then I should cherish it, study it, obey it, and fully trust it. If the Bible is truly the Word of God, then it's the final authority for all matters of faith, practice, and morality. Well, the Bible is indeed the Word of God, and God successfully communicates to me in spite of my fallibility. The Bible is indeed the Word of God. There is no other source that contains everything we need to know about God in order to have a right relationship with Him. The Bible is indeed the Word of God. From the Bible I realize that I exist in a new and a different domain, a spiritual domain of God's love for me. Understanding that reality should put me in awe, precipitating a joy that glorifies God. The Bible is indeed the Word of God. Thus, I should be devoted to the Word of God. The Bible is indeed the Word of God. If anyone dismisses the Bible, they dismiss God himself. What a magnificent and gracious God I have. He could have left me to struggle through life with no help at all, but he gave me his word.